Having dealt with a character who is uh, bundled of confused emotions, Lee's 2005 adaptation of Amprok's Brokeback Mountain gave us in Ennis and Jack two cowboys also struggling to deal with their emotions in a film which would be seen by many as an important touchstone for queer cinema, even if it would controversially lose to Crash at the Oscars, where Lee would go on to proclaim both Best Director, Adapted Original Screenplay and Original Score for the film. Here we have featured two cowboys that who are not only struggling to deal with their own emotions, but also dealing with acceptance of the world around them as they sneak out to the title of Brokeback Mountains to deal with their emotions over the period of two decades. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Moves and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. <laughs> Tonight we are going to be talking about Robert Mountain, another classy fair. And this is a film which, when it came out, it, there was a lot of hubbub about it. And looking back on it now and certainly comparing where we are as a society now, it, it feels like um, almost sort of antiquated the fact that we were making such a hubbub about an uh, independent film about gay cowboys, which... For those of us who actually have seen the film, we know there actually is a lot more to it than that. But certainly here, Lee is producing a film which is definitely for sort of like the Oscar sort of bait crowd. It's a very sort of thoughtful film as we have uh, these two cowboys, Ennis and Jack, here played by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and the sadly departed uh, Heath Ledger. Um both of them introduces young men hired to ranch ranch uh, sheep up in the mountains who discover feelings about each other and are now and sort of spend the following two decades trying to figure out what those feelings are as they get married and have children and deal with the world ever changing around them much more so in a society uh, where homosexuality is not so much frowned upon but something to be literally stamped out but uh kim i mean had you seen mountain before this watch or is this uh what uh, where were you uh when you came to this film i think for the rest of ang lee's filmography i think it's pretty much going to be all first time watches from now on so um yeah <laughs> so yeah this is my one of my first time watches i'm not a big fan of you know Oscar fodder usually mm. and that's why it takes me a long time to get around to it and I mean Brokeback Mountain came out at a time where uh I was like I was I know I mean I'm in Montreal so Montreal is already very you know we we have we have a lot of 
LGBT things in the city already from, you know, pride parades that are from many decades ago. I remember being at them when I was really young. And, you know, like, and, and then, you know, we have, like, a gay village and everything. So, you know, gay relationships is not, like, completely unknown here. Um, but obviously, like, Brokeback Mountain was, was back then, it was very much, I think, mostly recognized because of that. And it was because it was so daring to talk about it in 2005, about, you know, gay cowboys. I know, it seems like a lifetime ago. And, and, you know, thinking about it now, where, you know, where, what, 15 years later, and the world is completely changed because we have so more, so much more of this um, LGBT cinema. And that sort of, and, you know, that sort of diving into these, you know, what used to be forbidden relationships as this, you know, obviously this story hangs a lot on. Um, but, you know, now a lot of the stories we have, it's, it's, it seems like now stepping into the movie, it's less refreshing than I would say if probably I went into it in 2005, obviously. But at the same time, I also think you need to be a little bit older to be able to appreciate a movie like Brokeback Mountain. I can imagine myself really not liking it. Especially as its runtime is like over two hours long. And, you know, the pacing isn't exceptionally fast either. No, this is definitely a slow burn. I mean, that first hour is a little excruciating, depending on what you're obviously watching the film for. I mean, if you obviously want to see Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger playing cowboys, I mean, yeah, that first hour I'm sure is going to be real riveting for you. But... The real sort of meat of the sort of story really sort of kicks in around the the second hour, where these two two guys are basically started to try and move on with their life. They're trying to establish some sort of normality, yet at the same time they're still arranging these fishing trips in quotation marks there uh, up to the mountains to reconnect with each other, and it's really especially interesting because we look at the like Heath Ledger's character and he's as i said he's settled down he's like married he's a family man and he's living this what would appear to be this sort of much more normal life and then we look at jake gunhold's character who's struggling to deal with the fact that he has this like extreme uh long distance relationship from this a uh, man he has such obvious feelings for and the fact that he's trying to you know fall in line he tries to do the right thing he gets involved with a a rodeo Queen, here played by uh, Anne Hathaway, doing a really realistic country accent, has to be said. And um, he's there trying to, you know, live his best straight life at the same time sneaking off to Mexico to try and curb his urges. And it's just fascinating the fact that still watching these two guys who they're sort of like being pressured by society to conform and at the same time trying to figure out what their sort of feelings are to each other it's not so much the fact that whether they're like gay or straight or bisexual it's just about two people who found each other and unfortunately society frowns on them being together mm-hmm. but you know like i i really think that i think that you know the story is very twofold and and in some ways these two characters you know ennis and jack are are really interesting to watch um i think because Heath Ledger's character Ennis is a much more, he's very loyal, you can say. He's very responsible. And at the same time, he's also 
he's also very reserved in his ways, right? Because if you think about it, his character really only is interested in, to me- in men when it's with Jack. Yeah. Whereas Jake Gyllenhaal, this is his nature. You know, this is something that's a part of him. He's already embraced that he likes men. And it's all a big facade to be with, you know, be with, um, be with Laureen, which is Anne Hathaway. And while he's able to, you know, play that role of a husband very well and a father really well, he, you know, essentially where he finds fulfillment is in, you know, intimate relationships with men. And in that sense, you know, I think that it's interesting to see how he's really, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to say it. Like he's, he's, he's kind of has this like, he, in the, in a certain way, he's kind of like deeper in this sense where he really does like, there's a lot of love between these two and their relationship because they have so much separation and so much together and like a little bit of together that it feels so subtle, like their whole connection and what they have for each other because there's this feeling that they are pretty reserved with each other when, you know, they're just sitting around talking. Obviously, you know, there's, there's those very passionate moments that we get to see on the screen a little. And those ones are, are done really well because you really do see that kind of like the different levels of passion and emotion that ha- that is between them. And, and somehow it's... Ang Lee does a really good job at directing this because he's able to make it feel as passionate as if you were watching, like, just a man and a woman. Making them feel like these two, their love story and their romance is really, um, you know, like, it emphasizes on a really good point that men in a relationship and are, are, you know, accepted heterosexual relationships are really, are really the same thing when a romance is a romance. And I think that's what I really appreciated the most out of, out of the movie. Oh, definitely. I mean, this is a film where it's not so much focusing on, on what what they are. It's as yeah. I said, the the whole focus is just on, as you said, it's just on the romance between these two men, these two people yeah. who have happened to find each other, and it's. I think that's the most interesting thing about it. Even though we obviously brand this movie as the gay cowboy movie, yeah. Because um, I think I think you know I think like just following on the thought. I mean. I think one of the best things about it, while I talked about, you know, the character of Jack a lot, I mean, Ennis is is a very deep character because, you know, I think one of the most powerful scenes in, I think, the first hour was when they had their first separation, like when the job was over and they left and they were going their separate ways. And and then, you know, Ennis just walks coolly while he watches the truck drive away with, you know, Jack drives the truck away. And then he goes into an alley and then he just kind of like like wretches and cries and that sort of feeling and it's such a I don't know it it kind of like broke my heart a little because it was just like in some ways it felt like he was a little bit more distant in this relationship but at that scene you were able to know that he was holding so much inside of him that you know he really did love this man so much and it was just you know just like a summer thing right now at this point right it really, you know, who we don't know at this point whether obviously we know because th- there's a movie made out of it, but it's it's <laughs> you know it's not just like a summer fling, but at that point, you know, you would imagine whether it was because they didn't leave information to you know co- contact each other or anything. 
No, uh, definitely not, because, I mean, obviously we follow from there, and it's obviously goes on, he gets married, he has kids, and it's really sort of like a chance, uh, a chance encounter, really, the fact that Jack gets in touch with Venice, and they agree to meet up, and, you know, they, the connection is, like, almost instantaneous, like, rekindled between themselves, yeah. which unfortunately happens to be in full view of uh, Michelle Williams, uh, who plays his, uh, um, Ellis's wife, Alma. And I have to say that whenever these these two get together, it always happens to be in view of somebody. <laughs> um, because it's first of all, it's like the boss refuses to rehire them again because he finds out about what they've been doing up on the mountain. Then it's Alma who finds out, and she, with her, I wasn't sure what, like whether she's just sort of like refusing to accept it, or she's in her own mind, she's like just willing to put it aside because she wants to keep the family together it was very sort of unclear where her sort of stance was it until much sort of later where she sort of has that moment where she's sort of like laid this she's left a note for her husband in his uh in his fishing gear and he's told her that they went out fishing and they caught all these fish that they ate and and that and when she checked his gear the note hadn't been touched and that was sort of like the the concrete realization of what's actually been happening up on the mountains for her, but certainly with his character, as you said, initially it's like almost like a fling. It's sort of like, oh, that was something that happened, and he goes on with his life, and he doesn't have any other connections with other guys, and the only sort of relationship he has is with Alma. And when his marriage falls apart, he just lives his solitary life. The only sort of human contact he has, other than like that passing sort of fling he has with a waitress is with these sort of like meetups with Jack and the rest of the time he just sort of buries himself in his work and raising his family and just being being responsible for holding down the thing because as you said he's offered a chance to escape with with Jack to go on for them to go up and set their own ranch and live their own life away from the public eye and he says no I've got family responsibilities I've got you know maintenance pay I've got my daughters that um, I've got to raise and stuff and I thought that was it was sort of flew in the face of like the the gay fantasy you think you're being sold you think oh you know these these two guys are going to fight each other and they're going to go against society norms but no it's sort of like you've got they they want to have a relationship with each other and at the same time they've they've got responsibilities and Ennis in particular just really adheres to his responsibilities whereas Jack is just looking for an out he's looking for a way to embrace the life that he he truly believes that um he should be living i think i think it's kind of it's kind of their opposites right i mean jack is a much more honest person in that sense like he's more honest to himself and and you know while it was you know a crazy drive for him every time he actually (laughs) because he went back to broke back every single time to meet with to meet with Ennis, he actually lowered his risk so much because his wife, I don't know if Anne Hathaway's character like knew about it because it really felt like she did at the end, you know, when she was talking about, you know, the death and all that stuff. It felt like she did. She was she was hiding more than you know, than than what she was than she what she was she was saying. Like in some ways it kind of made you question a little, but we'll talk about that later. Um but at that set, you know, like she would make that remark and that sort of thing, but at the same time, you know, Ennis is that sort of character where he just has, I think he, he's held by a lot of fear. 
he's held by a lot of worry about how the society views him. Whereas Jack is less of that burden because, you know, he openly tells his family pretty much that, oh, um, at one point I'm going to come back uh, with a friend and we're going to build this ranch up. We're going to make this happen, you know? And, and, you know, I mean, his parents obviously, you know, know about it at that point that something, you know, is going on here. But, you know, at the same time, it, it's like it was always in his plan to do this. At one point, he believed that he would be able to convince Ennis to do it. Just watching these characters unfold, I mean, this is, um, I think, this is the thing, cause it's very much a two-fold story all the way through. You're constantly mm-hmm. flitching back and forth between Jack and Ennis and seeing where they are in their lives. And where Jack obviously has these moments of happy, you can, you get those uh obviously there's also those moments of like honesty from when they're like at the uh the the dance and he's uh and he's uh seems to be having a connection with the with the other um his wife's friend's husband across the table i wasn't sure what was going on with that and he says also um like during like one of the final sort of meetings he has with ennis that their marriage is just basically for show that he could they can basically just phone in the bits of the marriage that they still sort of attend to <laughs> I, I i love i love how that how the the character is played by by david harbour and the wife is played by anna ferris okay the the, pa- the the couple at the at you know the dance thing with the when he goes out with his wife yeah right? <laughs> you know who David Harbour is, right? I know. David, I've just now looked at other David Harbour, and it's obviously Stranger Things. So, <laughs> hey, you know, not only the Stranger Things, the new uh, what's his face there, Hellboy, right? <laughs> oh, is that him? Is it? Yeah. Oh God, I just as I said, I couldn't see it past the sort of tragic prosthetics of the new Hellboy. I haven't even seen the new Hellboy yet. I saw it on Netflix and I've just not put myself to subject myself to that. I was sort of like, oh, what do I want to watch? Do I want to watch Hellboy or the two-hour uh, two bit gay cowboy movie? And it's like, oh, gay cowboys it is. <laughs> Who'd have thunk, right? You got, you got David Harbour anyways. Now, out of the two, I would say Heath Ledger is sort of like the more prominent actor here. Yeah. Um, he really sort of carries Jake Gyllenhaal for the most most part of this film. I think Jake Gyllenhaal's got a sort of like he's got more naivety to his performance, whereas Heath Ledger's got uh, kind of that world weariness to him. Mm. And it, I think, in many ways, while while obviously uh, Ledger, I mean, he he openly said he had no problems playing a gay man. His only sort of concern was that he he wasn't sure he had the enough maturity to play the role as an actor and I think he definitely pulls it off he's very convincing as a father figure and playing uh, a character older than I, I'm guessing you know, by the time he finished he's obviously older than Ledger was yeah um, and I think at the same time well Gunho's got that obviously he's, you know he's very naive he's very happy-go-lucky that it only makes the moments where he sort of snaps such as like his father-in-law who's keeps turning the tv back on uh, whether they're at Thanksgiving, I think those moments only have the more power when you see him sort of like letting loose with a bit of that that frustration he's obviously building up over these uh, these years where he's not going to see the man he'd rather be with, rather than when he's being sort of forced to stay at home and play happy families with his <laughs> annoying in-laws. Yeah, and then and then the in-laws on top of it doesn't even 
doesn't really respect him either, right? So yeah, he, he doesn't find his spot at home. While while Heath Ledger, in some ways, like Ennis has a spot at home. Like when he was married, he was you know the father figure at home. So you know he has a bit more power in his performance and a lot more. I think his character is also more refined, but has a lot more depth also. Whereas, you know, while Jack's character is very much, you know, like you said, you know, he's he's happy-go-lucky. He's very, he is a more naive kind of character. He's more, you know, he's more like, I don't care. I will do anything in the face of love. Who cares if I die as long as I'm happy? You know, kind of thing. Whereas, no, like, he's more fearless in that sense. And, and there's a lot of... You know, these sort of characters kind of are really good to watch, but at the same time, they're also the type of character which you know, oh man, one day you're gonna something bad is gonna happen, you know? And and a part of me thinks that, you know, the way that, you know, he they say they say that he died is not really the way that he dies. But, you know, obviously no one knows because, you know hmm. <laughs> the flashback you get is more of an imagination than, you know, than, than really whether it's a truth, right? That's right. You get, you're presented with two different truths, really. We're given the story being told by Anne Hathaway's character, which is uh, that, that um, okay, spoiler alert, that um, their husband was killed while he was uh, changing a tyre. It had a blowout and it uh, killed him. Um, and at the same time, we got Heath, we got Ennis's sort of imagine of what happened where he was obviously um gay bashed mm. and i think this is something a point i wanted to raise i mean do you think that that jack is more able to be sort of more carefree or ta- be so live in this sort of more fantasy gay fantasies of world of you know we'll go and we'll have our own ranch and we'll raise sheep and and whatnot and at the same and then this has obviously got those childhood memories of seeing um one half of a local gay couple when it was a child who'd been been lynched by the local mob and beaten and castrated and just dumped in a ditch mm-hmm. that because he's got that childhood memory that he it sort of keeps him more in check with his feelings because yeah. he knows what's what the world around him is really like how they're exactly how they view uh homosexuals yeah it- um especially in this bible belt sort of stretch of land that they happen to be in because they're very sort of devout catholics it has to be said you know obviously that's that's the fear that he has right that that you know in he grew up with this notion that it was wrong and i think that you know whenever you talk to say you know like if you watch enough uh queer eye <laughs> the tv series <laughs> which i do well if you watch enough of queer eye you pretty much get the concept that you know a lot of people grow up in church, and I don't go to church, so I don't know. But, um, you know, a lot of people go to church, and they frown upon gay gay men or, you know, whatever. You know, like, the LGBT community. But at the same time, like, that's why a lot of them are having this sort of, you know, in that sense, I think that's why Ennis's character is, you know, obviously they're in the day and age where it's not now, you know. Like, maybe now it's it's more accepted, I think. Um and and for him it's like in his he has this fear that's already been implanted into his into his mind that this is something that's wrong you know and it's kind of like at at you know at the certain point i think 
you know, right now we're, we're really getting into spoilers. I mean, the spoiler alert we had is, is real, but right now we're getting into it. Is, you know, like, at the last part where they have that final meeting, um, I think it's one of the most powerful scenes because you start realizing that as much as this is, you know, something that, you know, they love each other a lot, they also have a lot of frustrations towards each other. And a lot of, you know, things that they're not happy with. Whereas, you know, like, Jack hates the fact that he doesn't say anything before he says that, you know, his job is so important, but he won't move on with him. While at the same time, you know, Ennis' character kind of blames Jack a little. Because he was kind of like, you know, at the beginning he was like, well, I've never sinned before, you know. Mm. And to him, I think, in his mind, he feels like he's sinned. Because at the end, he kind of, like, blames Jack for for making him the way he is. Because, honestly, it was, you know, it was Jack who made the move on Ennis. And, and then he reciprocated, right? So, I don't know. I mean, there, there's a lot. Like, I feel like the, the romance here is, is so heavy. And as the story goes along, it, it's this subtle, subtle thing. Like, I didn't think I connected with the characters so much until you know the final i think like the final quarter of it after you know that from that argument on to you know like the whole uh, death moment and visiting his room and all those little moments all to like t the end because there's a lot of like little details that ang lee you know like the screenplay itself does which which is so so clever because it refers back to things in the beginning that if i don't know if like some people remembered it right such as like the shirt oh like, yeah he thought he lost the shirt and then you realize that he actually took it and then he finds it and and i was i was like oh my god because i remember that scene so he said that and i was like i was like oh my gosh i was like super like it, it just like kind of hit me real hard and then i started getting tears in my eyes and stuff like that and <laughs> well it's certainly during that sort of final scene where he goes to jack's family home yeah, exactly. And he's in, he's in his childhood um, sort of room. That, I think we get to see the the sort of realist moment for the character of, of, of Venice. This is him at his most unguarded. Yeah. And up until this point, we've never really been... We've never really sort of had a grasp on how he feels about Jack. I mean, we obviously know Jack adores Ennis. Yeah. That That's overly clear. I mean, we don't... I think anyone can bloody see that, but... Same with Ennis, he's a lot more sort of guarded. And I think, as I said, he's always sitting behind his responsibilities and the fact that he's not gone off of other men. He's He's been... He's not had the same sort of urges that Jack has uh, to deal with. I mean, he's been happy, crappy, you know, with his living the straight life, so to speak. Uh, but when we see him, in, as I said, during those sort of final... Those moments in um, Jack's childhood bedroom, and he just like completely lets it all go. Um, and to much the like at the end when he sets up his little shrine to mm. the memories that of uh, of that they shared up on the on the mountain there, you know, fishing and hunting and playing wrestling and whatnot. So if you are uh, <laughs> if you if you hope and see nudity, you get plenty of that here. So. <laughs> It balances out the heavy scenes. stuff. <laughs> a lot of a lot of bare backs and butts. <laughs> well, you get you get that cliff jumping sequence. Yeah, yeah, but 
<laughs> a lot of people were real glad for the invention of DVR pausing for that one, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you even, I mean, if you were into gal, if you're into gals, the Anne Hathaway also has a topless scene, which I doubt she's ever done again after that. Book, oh no, so. she does in Love and Other Drugs. And it's always oh, surprising. Yeah, that's true. I, I forgot about that. It's that surprising kind of because um, Anne Hathaway, like Katie Holmes, you, you don't imagine her to be doing nude scenes. Um, to, to quote Howard and Kumar, because she's a good girl. And now we get to see her boobs. <laughs> um, same with Michelle Williams. I think um, all of those years we were watching Dawson's Creek hoping it was going to happen, and all we should have been watching is just highbrow gay cinema, clearly. <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to with this film. It's it's coming really in the wake because before this, we obviously have the new queer cinema movement. We've brought in the likes of Greg Araki and Gus Van Sant. I mean, Gus Van Sant was originally sort of first choice to direct the film, and he'd uh, hoped to cast Matt Damon as Ennis and Joaquin Phoenix as Jack, hmm. both solid uh, choices. Um, Unfortunately, Matt Damon was like, you know, I did a gay movie with Tanta Mr. Ripley and I did a cowboy movie with all the pretty horses. I can't follow it up with a gay cowboy movie. <laughs> so uh, Van Sant went on to make the bio uh, film Milk based on uh, the life and times of gay rights activist and politician Harvey Milk. Um, Joe Schumacher was also linked to the project for a while, which is kind of surprising. I kind of would be interested to see what Joel Schumacher's Broadway Mountain would have been like. So, oh, I don't know about that. I, I don't, I don't know about that. I just think I only know him for like doing camp material like Batman and exactly, uh, Batman Forever, so. or doing like dark material like Eight Millimeters. So it's sort of like, where do, where does he go with uh um with this movie? I feel like if he does it, it'd be something along the lines of like Phantom of the Opera or something, which. I didn't hate, to be fair, but yeah. I mean, I I'm not sure if I'd be down for it. I'm I don't know, you know, like it's. Hmm. <laughs> well, there is an opera version of this film. I've not seen it, but uh, it's out there. Ah, okay. So. I'm not sure I'd want to see it, but. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, then again, I'm always surprised what works as an opera. Like they did, they did a Jay Springer opera, which was really good. So. You know, being the Canadian that I am, we do have to talk a bit about the scenery. And obviously because they won the, um, they won the award for original score. So what do you think about those two things? The score I find very forgettable. There's only one, there's only one noticeable it's bit very, of bit of music. Cowboy. It's very cowboy because it's like all guitar strums and stuff like that. I think at the beginning we get some and then we get some harmonica bits with the thing but that's not really the score that's just him messing around i think and it's it's very subtle i think i think that's the deal is angley cinema is not supposed to be known for their score <laughs> i mean that's... there's a lot of montage moments when they're going through you know the times of you know the four years apart and, and and the time between and all that stuff there's a lot of montage moments and those have the original score which does blend well with the scene but is it something that I say would stand out? I'm not really sure. It really depends what else was, you know, nominated at that time. Well, the problem with, with the Pope Mountain soundtrack, I mean, there's only one memorable bit of music in it, which is uh, that sort of soaring string section that mm. they used in, like, the trailer music and, like, 
whenever they were promoting this film. The rest of the time, it's just like someone strumming away on a guitar plays a, a, a note here, a note there. and yeah. It's very abstract. It doesn't uh, sort of add or, or take anything away. And it's interesting when you compare it to when we look at Crashing Tiger and Dragon, where we had like the more sort of tra- traditional sort of like Chinese opera sort of um, sort of backing track to it. Mm. We had like the taunted drums and, uh, and, and and sort of very sort of like traditional sort of music there, which was really great as it sort of set pace and tone for what we're seeing on the screen here. And when we compared to Brokeback and it's just very sort of abstract and it's sort of like, it's just there in the background to fill in, in the silence really. The rest of the time it's just, more about um what's happening on screen i would prefer maybe just like a nature track or something in the background because <laughs> just just something because at times it felt like it was just too quiet and when you especially when you're dealing with um the gravelly tones of um uh ledger who um at times he at times he just seemed to be speaking into his chest more than actually projecting his uh voice which was a bit annoying yeah, no, this movie really benefited from subtitles. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> it really benefited from it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, as I said, I keep coming back. I keep looking at it and then just thinking back to 2005 and the fact that you had... That people were still shocked about this. I mean, over here in Britain, we had had adaptation of, like, Fingersmith and Tip in the Velvet, which is obviously Victorian lesbians and... Uh, it, it was funny when at the time, because obviously hanging out in the village and stuff, and you see it read like the pink paper and uh, whatnot, and they've got like the top 10 books, and it was like Tipping the Velvet, Brokeback Mountain, and Fingersmith. It's like, oh, so basically anything that's got a drama attached to it at the moment. So, But um, certainly this was really embraced by the by the by the community, and at the same time it was being blasted by the church, including Fred Phelps, who took it uh, upon himself to call Heath Ledger's death out as being a punishment for God for promoting the act of sodomy, which, uh, but uh, thankfully we all know where he's here to, you know, burning in hell, you hate spewing hate monger. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, movies are very fair, right? <laughs> One year we talk about gay cowboys and then the next we're talking about, you know, something like Spotlight, which talks about, you know... <laughs> Not it's, very, you know, nice things about the church. It's funny, really. I mean, when you look at when we look at the situation here, where the academy, because this, this, let's not face it. I mean, this year, the year that Brokeback Mountain gets snubbed, um, gets gets snubbed in the Oscars. I think it's also the same year that Tilda Swindon doesn't get a nomination for. We need to talk about Kevin. Um, Drive also gets ignored. I mean, a lot of people wanted Ryan Gosling to get a nomination for his role in that. Um, and we get to the most recent, well, not the most recent, but we get to the Oscars where we got Moonlight up against La La Land, and it feels like the Academy are almost, like, leaping at the opportunity to sort of correct the mistake that they made with Broadback Mountain by giving the Best Film um, Award to Moonlight, a film where we have to wait the whole movie just to watch watch Two Men Kiss. Um, when it should have rightfully gone to La La Land. And obviously I think uh, Warren Beatty felt the same as well because he did try and give it to La La Land. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, I've only seen Moonlight and not La La Land yet, surprisingly. Mm. So, I mean... Uh, Moonlight I did nothing know. for me. 
I think because I, I this is a point I was spoiled on Gregor Arki movies, and when you watch Gregor Arki movies, he's all his characters are so oversexed and out there, and it was really kind of shocking when you're watching this as uh, so late night viewing because nobody else is showing LGBT characters, so to see men engaging in healthy gay lifestyles and having such a such a good time. I mean, I showed it to one of my friends who's again, he's like, yeah, that's totally unrealistic. Nobody's having that much fun. <laughs> so, so it's like, oh, you, you kind of killed my view of the, what was happening down the community. So, but as as such, it now sort of like means that uh, when we have these more subtle gay dramas and stuff, it's all sort of like, oh, just probably be watching more Gregor Arki than this. It's all like, I don't need to wait a whole movie to watch two main make out. If that's your whole selling point, um, it's kind of like. Um, that other movie we had recently, Call Me By Your Name, or Brolita, as it was affectionately known. Mm. I think that suffered many of the same issues as well, but... I don't know. I mean... We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Do you see yourself really sort of going back and watching this again? I know there's people in like on Letterboxd who say that this is like one of their favourite movies and they constantly go back to it and certainly it made like the number one slot for many sort of uh, best of lists in the year it was released. But I don't know. I mean, I don't usually go back to movies like this. Um, dramas are not something I usually go back to. I mean, the drama that I probably have seen the most of is probably Moulin Rouge. <laughs> But, which I guess could be comparable to this because they're both kind of forbidden love and, you know, that's kind of in my further viewing, but we've already <laughs> talked about it now, so. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a person that likes to go back to watch dramas, um, especially, like, sad romances, unless it's, like, something that's gonna make me, like, really cry my ass off and it's not like this one made me cry that bad it just made me very like it made me kind of choke up a little but nothing too intense you know it, it's a good movie I, I i mean it was a lot better than than i expected it to be yeah um it, especially you know after you know the last movie we reviewed and angley's thing hulk oh. right uh so not that hulk was that bad but i mean well, it, it was it was kind of like you know I would. I was hoping Hulk is. I was thinking that Hulk would probably be the kind of like the low point in Ang Lee's career. So I'm thinking Brokeback can't be that bad. And you know, I went into it and it was. You know, it it delivered a lot better than I expected to, especially for like a two hour movie. Where, as you said, you know, I agree with you. And the first hour was um, the hardest to go through. I remember checking the time over and over again. I felt like I had watched like an hour and a half, and it was. It just was never there. You know. Um, I know. You so mean yeah, this. I mean, I'm. I don't know. Slow burns are hard to watch again, unless they're really, really exceptional. You know, like I don't know, Stoker or something, or or like you know, the Vengeance trilogy or something. Um, but other than that, it's it's really, it's not something I go back to watch frequently. No, it's just all a bit too grim, really, isn't it? It's yeah. It and it's as I say, it's just a slow. It's such a slow burn. Yeah. And at the and, same time, it's it it's required for the material and and the story it's telling, which is great. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it's not a story I need to go back and and revisit. There's nothing really to sort of dissect here. And yeah, 
pre- pretty much that's it, right? You want to go back. It's either the movie is very enjoyable or you really connect with it. Or or it's something that, you know, you have a really good time watching when you go back. Or there's something more to discover. And I don't think that any of that applies here. So, like, if I was to have a fun time watching an Ang Lee movie about a gay romance, well, I'd go back to the wedding banquet. I wouldn't come back to Brokeback Mountain. You know, like, it's not like Ang Lee's never done a gay relationship before. He's done it before. So, it's, mm. you know. I think this is this is the thing. I think The Wedding Banquet is certainly a stronger film than this, this one is. Certainly in the terms of people having to hide their their sexuality and certainly i think wedding banquet i think i think we both had a lot more fun with that the than than with this one this one is just so grim in places it's sort of like it's such a a grime to watch people living out in the sticks doing nothing um with the hopes that they may actually get like every couple of years get to escape with a buddy to go and do something fun up in the mountains yeah, and, 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 you know, the thing was, you know, the thing is, it's wild to think that, you know, Brokeback Mountain was such a, was such, you know, was such a daring project about gay cowboys, you know? And then we talk about Wedding Banquet, which Ang Lee is kind of like, you know, super daring in 93 when he did it. So, you know, he's way above daring at that point, you know? And, and I think that, you know, it, it seemed fitting for him to come back to it when when he did to, to pick up a uh, original screenplay, which is about, you know, um, you know, another gay relationship for him to bring to the screen to a much, you know, bigger audience than, you know, what than than what the wedding banquet had, obviously. Yeah, I think it was certainly with Wedding Banquet, it was such an indie movie. That's why it sort of slipped onto the radar and obviously when you look at Brokeback Mountain, I mean he's already sort of established himself as a mainstream player at this point with like coming in hot after Crouching Tiger and Dragon, Hulk had um obviously made a, a fair amount of waves even though it wasn't particularly great. And it I think we kind of owe a lot to Brokeback Mountain the fact that Ang Lee didn't retire as he had originally planned after doing both Crash Attack and Hidden Dragon he was sort of like said he was pretty much done mm. and that he sort of revived his interest in directing by doing Brokeback Mountain this small little 14 million dollar indie film um, which like then goes on to like gross like some 178.1 million dollars which is sort of <laughs> pocket change we can all do with <laughs> And this is this is also you've got to remember as well. This is 178 million flying in the face of cinemas that are refusing to show it because of obviously its subject material. There's cold countries which are refusing to show it, and yet it still turns in 178 million, and like goes on to be like critically and like pick up numerous awards. It's not bad going, really. Yeah. You got to take some risks, right? And and Ang Lee did a risk that really really paid off. So, if you like Brokeback Mountain, what do you uh, watch next? Well, I mean, I looked at it as a multiple levels, right? Like, like I said, you know, you can go the Forbidden Love way, which I would say, you know, if you were looking at Forbidden Love, my favorite would be Moulin Rouge. Mm. Um, it's a musical. It's kind of fun. You know, it's a bit sad. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit dramatic. Very fitting if you like Brokeback Mountain. Um, not the fun part. This one's not that fun. Uh, but... Uh, but, you know, if you were going into kind of like um, gay relationships, I, I actually recommended, you know, to pair it with Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I know you don't view this very highly, um, but I, I had a decent time watching it. 
Uh, I'm not too crazy about the fact that they're making a sequel. I'm not so sure where they're going to go with that. But, I mean, for now, Call Me By Your Name sounds like a, a really good one. Um, mostly because I think that, you know, they had some really good performances. I'm not so sure about the story, but the performances were really good. Um, and then if you want something a little bit more, like, light-hearted, uh, light-hearted, um, gay romance, I would go in the direction of, um, The Birdcage, which is actually one of my, one, one of the movies I really enjoy, but I, I surprisingly don't watch a lot. I love The Birdcage, but I would never, and I love the, uh, French original film as well. Mm. Uh, La Cage Follet, which, um... I really enjoy as well, but I would never put Birdcage and um, Burt Bavant in the same sort of context. So that's a very good pairing. Well, I mean, you know, you watch something really dramatic. For me, I'm always like that. When I watch something really scary, I have to watch something very funny. Just like when I watch something really dramatic, I need to watch something like very relaxing afterwards to kind of like undo those very complicated feelings inside. So it's not a bad pairing, I think, as, as, as you know, a contrast. <laughs> No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> what about you? What would be your further viewing? Uh, my Private Idaho for 91 uh, with mm. Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. Okay. It's a real sort of landmark film, in, especially in the new queer cinema movement of these two friends uh, sitting out on this sort of like journey of self-discovery. Um, it's... I think this is, again, I'm sure my age here because I remember when this, when this film came out there was a lot of People who just like really wanted to talk about it, and I love a lot of girls I went to school with were really into it because they like River Phoenix. So they, this is the thing, they like River Phoenix and they like Johnny Depp. So they were seeing like a lot of really cool indie sort of art house movies. Like if you look at Johnny Depp's early films, he's doing things like Dead Man, which is like a um, Jim Jamoosh movie and stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, these girls are just like onto like all this really hip cinema just because they got crushes on like River Phoenix and uh, Johnny Depp. So. But no, um, my pro Idaho is really, it's still really, really good. It's like one of those nineties movies that's still worth uh, checking out, and and it's also dated really well. So I would uh, definitely check that out, especially with Keanu Reeves having his revival at the moment. It's fun to go back and uh, check those uh, sort of um, slacker years out. Um, other than that, I mean, you can if you want sort of like more sort of uh, popular sort of queer drama at the time. I mean, you can obviously look at, like, um, Fingersmith and Tip of the Velvet. Both BBC did uh, adaptations of both of those. Um, you can also check out um, Parchan Wook's The Handmaiden, which is uh, his adaptation of Fingersmith as well, which uh, is rather co- rather good as well. So, But, um, no, Broadback Mountain's a difficult, a difficult film to think of anything exactly like it. I mean... It's, I, my uh, still. It, it was funny when we were talking about independent cinema at the time. There's that joke on South Park where Carmen says that independent same cinema is just a bunch of gay cowboys sitting around eating pudding. And when the reviews of this came out, there was a number of people who latched onto that same joke as sort of like <laughs> enough gay cowboys, not enough pudding. <laughs> I actually, you know, I was just thinking about it. I didn't think about it before. Um, it just hit me that I actually watched a movie at a film festival. I don't know if it ever got distributed because I don't really think so. But um, it's a movie called uh, Socrates. It's this Brazilian drama. And it's somewhat of a coming of age story. And it's very relatable to Brokeback Mountain, I think, in that sense where 
Um, it's set in like you know obviously the um, Sao Paulo with with you know a a you know a fifteen year old teen who um, who ends up you know because he's grieving for his mother he has to go through that grieving and extreme poverty and and dealing with you know this newfound kind of feeling of homophobia that he has uh, homophobia and just you know the fact that it's not homophobia for him but the fact that he's realizing that he is gay and just the homophobia around him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's also, you know, quite dramatic, this one, and yeah, a bit of a coming of age and, and that sort of thing. And um, if you ever get a chance to watch it, it's actually not too bad, I remembered. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm just looking at Google, what Google recommends, and... Uh, they recommend Blue Valentine, which is Michelle Williams doing another. Yeah, but another Google, is, movie. Google just uses the uses a lot of times just the characters that are mm. in the movies, so it's not it's not very relatable in that sense. I, I think Blue Valentine, the closest it's gonna ever get, is probably like the the romantic, the dramatic romantic bit. Uh, why can't Michelle Williams just do some like some happy indie movies? Someone give her a romantic comedy. She always just is like really emotionally draining movies. <laughs> it's like maybe that's maybe that's the type of character that she. I don't know. Maybe that's the type of character that she excels. I don't know. In. I just feel so bad for her all the time. It's sort of like if if she was like a person, you just like just want to sit down and give her a hug. It's like you're just going from one bad relationship to the next. If, <laughs> if your cinematic self is just you know. Let's find you a, a nice guy who works at Staples or something and hasn't got 101 issues. <laughs> her cinematic self is all about the the crap relationship. Yeah, her cinematic in. self is just about, you know, life is pain. <laughs> and it's like, oh. Um, but yeah, they they um, it does recommend Crazy, which is also really good. But I'd say that's more about just self-discovery than... Um, than and sort of themes that we we touch upon here, but no, if you haven't seen Crazy uh, from two thousand five, definitely check it out. It's a uh, coming of age story, and I read somewhere that I think everyone in Canada had seen it. So <laughs> I haven't. So <laughs> well, apart from Kim. <laughs> <laughs> but then you know, I'm always the exception to the rule in many things. So I don't like to follow fads, and people are like, "Oh, I'm watching this." Uh, well, you know, I probably haven't watched it yet. I'm gonna wait a little while. <laughs> I know what you mean, so... But, um... Yes, that's obviously... Um... Our thoughts on Broadback Mountain. Please do let us know how, uh... Your thoughts on Broadback Mountain, uh... Especially if uh, you remember when it came out, or... You know, how it affected you personally. We'd love to hear, hear all those comments. And you can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, as well as Instagram. You can also check out our, um... Blog... So it's a movies and tea podcast at wordpress.com where we got our complete archive and you can check out our complete seasons um which we've done already on Paul W. Sanson, Guillermo del Toro, Sylvia Coppola, as well as uh, the, the earlier episodes of this season here where we're looking obviously at Gus Van Sant. But um Kim, where do we go next? We're jumping forward two years later to uh two thousand seven's Chinese uh drama? Romance, romantic drama, Lust Caution. Yep, Lust Caution. Certainly one of the films I'm really excited to uh, see. This uh, espionage erotic period drama. 
Uh, erotic, erotic anything with Ang Lee's hands is always worrying, but at the same time, I'm very excited to uh, see this. I mean, it's based on the 1979 novella by Eileen Chang, um, set in 1930s Hong Kong, so, as well as 1942 Shanghai. So, um, really excited to see this one. Um, as I've caught, I've only seen the sort of opening 15 minutes and never been able to get back to it since. So, I'm very excited to uh, to see this. I think when we were doing the list. Uh, for the season, it was sort of like Lost Caution and the Ice Storm were the two that I hadn't seen that was sort of really keen to uh, check out. Mm. So, it'd be really uh, good. Yeah. 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 I, d- I didn't know this was made by, this was uh, this was adapted from Eileen, Eileen Chang's thing because she's so popular. I don't think I've ever read anything of hers, though. I've always wanted to, though. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, Joan Chang, Tony Lung, Tang Wei, Lee Hong Wang. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, so that's obviously coming up on our next episode. Uh, but uh, as always, thank you for listening. And if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button. So leave us a review. It all helps raise the profile of the show. And um, we'll be back next time uh, talking about Last Caution. Good night. Thank you.